This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone. This is another one of our podcasts for our PhD program at the University of Maryland. My name is Connie Dolan and I'm one of the faculty at the University of Maryland. And I'm joined by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the University of Maryland graduate program, Masters in Palliative Care. Lynn? So we're very excited that literally any minute now we should be getting the approval from the Maryland Higher Education Commission for the first PhD in palliative care in the United States, and I think only the fourth in the world. So we're terribly excited about this. And uh, I'm very grateful to Connie and the other faculty for their insight, their wisdom, and their great vision, particularly in this first course and setting the stage and interviewing experts in the field, such as our guests on this podcast, and how this all started, where are we now, and what does the future look like? So Connie, take it away. I'm very excited about this one. So I am excited to introduce to you all Judy Lundperson, and Judy is very well known in the hospice circle. She's been in the field for 40 years, has a perspective of the context before hospice was being totally uh, formally created, to the hospice benefit, to all of the places afterward of having to think about metrics, of having to think about regulations. Um, Judy is currently the Vice President of Regulatory and Compliance for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, um, where she's really been an amazing liaison with the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services. She actually started her career in um, the South, in the Carolinas, with working at the state organization. Um, And I think, again, for the students to understand, you may start in one place and you grow um, into other places, or opportunities come and you realize that your passion will lead you in a different direction. But I think um, one of the things that Judy brings to us is, you know, kind of learning from our past and understanding for the future um, in terms of thinking about all of those regulatory pieces. So Judy, thank you so much. I've only scratched the surface about, you know, who you are and what you've done. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit more and, and let the students know kind of what your role was and how you kind of came into that. Sure. So I I often uh, describe my first um, interaction with hospice as uh, meeting a man on an airplane. Um, It was, I was very young, probably four years out of college, um, did not have a master's degree at the time, um, and was going to, and I worked with volunteer programs, um, and I was working in state government. I was going to some meeting in Chicago, and I sat down in the middle seat, and there was a man at the window with papers everywhere. And he was very irritated that I had sat down in the middle seat, <laughs> a woman on, on the aisle who was terrified. So we're getting ready to take off. And I, I should probably also disclose I'm a social worker by training uh, with a um, health policy master's, but the social worker part of it is important to the story. Judy, that's a new fact I did not know. So see, you just never know. So okay. I, tur- I, tur- I see that the woman next to me is so scared. And so I turned to her and said, you know, it looks like you're kind of afraid, you know, are you okay? And she says, I've never flown before. I'm going to Las Vegas to see my son and I'm just terrified. 
I mean, her knuckles are white. I turned to the man to the right of me and I said, please help me reassure this woman that everything's gonna be okay. And he turns to her and he says, everything's gonna go be okay. And he goes back to his papers. We get there, you know, we, we are, we end up, he and I end up starting to talk. Um, and he's going to a, one of the inaugural meetings of the National Hospice Organization Quality and Standards Committee, where they are developing the initial and in original standards for hospice care. So we, are, we sit there and we're talking and he says, well, you know, my job to bring to this meeting is to bring job descriptions for all the members of the interdisciplinary team. And the only one I don't know, I can't figure out what they do is I don't know what a volunteer coordinator does. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I know what a volunteer coordinator does because that's what I've been working on for the last four years. So, you know, uh, let's, let's set the time frame here. No email, no internet. You know, what we have is facts and, and we had a thermal fax, so not fast fax or mail. So I said, well, I have a lot of, you know, resources for you. I can help you develop that. And he took some notes so he would be prepared for his NHO meeting in Chicago. Um, and we, we kept in touch after that. I ended up, and he was the board president for the state association in North Carolina at the time called um, Hospice of North Carolina. They formed because they wanted to be like the Connecticut hospice and have one hospice in North Carolina. Their very first meeting, 75 people showed up and said, oh, no, 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 no. We all want our own hospices. And so the state organization became the helper to get all these organizations around the country, around the state um, to develop hospices. So, you know, early on, the work of that group was, you know, traveling to nighttime meetings with community citizens and doctors and nurses who had seen bad deaths all over the place. <clears throat> and they were um, so committed and so completely um, passionate about how do we make sure that we provide, um, develop some care for patients so they have a, a better death than what we're seeing now. Um, um, and, and it was, um, it was very, it was very exciting time. Um, you know, the, the thing that was about, uh, uh, amazing about it is that it was um, all volunteer. You know, each of the hospices in North Carolina at the very beginning had one employee. Everything else that was, do, that was provided um, was provided by volunteers. So the one employee was always a nurse. Um, the one employee coordinated all the other volunteer nurses, coordinated all the other volunteer volunteers to do other things. They had huge fundraisers, um, but hospice did not start as a Medicare benefit. And, you know, I mean, if I am thinking about it, I am thinking about how incredibly different the start was for hospice than for most Medicare benefits. So quite, um, quite something, I think, as we think about the beginning of, of hospice care. So Judy, when you, um, I mean, so, you know, as I think nobody, that's the part that I think a lot of people don't know the history of like how many years right. it was a volunteer um, right. process. And um, 
and then the Medicare benefit. And, and so talk to us a little bit about, so, you know, this has started, people have been invested because they see care for the dying is wrong. And, and you know, we've, we've had different speakers talk about the context of, um, uh, you know, we didn't talk about it in America, cancer was auto automatically a death sentence. Um, right. We, you know, we were sort of having this birthing movement. So then people were thinking that, so we, we kind of laid that, but I don't think people understood like, okay, so you have this development of a volunteer part and then talk to us a little bit about the evolution about what even happened that the Medicare benefit was even put forth as a possibility. Well, it's, it's also such an interesting part of our, our history. So We've got, um, you know, care being provided. I know I, I, was, um, I was on the board of Hospice of North Carolina during uh, when the first hospice patient in North Carolina was served in Winston-Salem in 1979. So, um, so there's a lot of to do about that. In the first, um, they served their first patient, I think, think in September, October. Um, by the end of the year, they served 27 patients. Um, they were so proud, it was so proud. Um, so if we think about it from that perspective, it's, it's like um, small numbers of patients because you couldn't do all of that um, with, um, with just volunteers. And I think um, there was a lot of pride in it being a volunteer movement um, that we didn't expect money for this. We didn't expect um, for the government, like the, the government, Medicare, whatever, um, to pay for this care. Um, what we really wanted to make sure of is that we had um, the opportunity for care to be better for patients um, and care to be, so, uh, patients to be supported and their families to be supported. And it was um, completely um, passionate about um, that being the, the end goal all the time. Um, so as we started to kind of think about this a little bit more, um, we were um, looking at, okay, um, we're, we have more people that want this care, but we're like dead tired. We are so exhausted from, you know, trying to make sure that all this gets done. We don't have the structure in place yet. Um, we have great fundraisers, but is that gonna be able to sustain us? So. A small, small group of us um, started meeting in Washington. Um, Ann Morgan Vickery from what is now Hogan Lovells um, was a young um, associate at uh, what then was Hogan, Hogan and Hartson. Um, and she got interested in this and got some other uh, colleagues at Hogan and Hartson to uh, also be interested. And then we have um, two young whippersnappers from um, Florida who are also very, very interested in this, um, Don Gates and then um, Hugh Westbrook. And we started meeting with a few people like in, in the uh, conference rooms at Hogan and Hartson to kind of say, well, what would it look like if Medicare would pay for this? And we're all like, yeah, right, this is never gonna happen. Um, no, we, I mean, we, it's a dream world we're in. Um, we can't imagine um, that this would be um, something that people would, would be excited about. Um, and nobody wants to talk about death. You know, that's the other big piece of this. So um, we kept on meeting and um, Don and Hugh um, said, we're gonna put together a grassroots movement um, and we're going to figure out how to cover the country with um, advocates. And so 
I ended up being an advocate for the Southeast. So um, I think Virginia, West Virginia, maybe the Carolinas, maybe down even farther into um, South Carolina and um, Georgia. But um, we had people just like me all over the country. And so, uh, and again, remember, we have no, no email, no internet, none of those things except the phone and the fax. Um, and um, we would then, and then we decided we started meeting like once a month in Washington to say, okay, um, what are we hearing here? And how, how do we make sure that we get some um, interest from this part of the country or that part of the country? So we have two things going on. We have the group of advocates that I was a part of um, who said, okay, how can we talk about this with Senator Hines from um, Pennsylvania or um, some of the other um, members of Congress, uh, Bob Dole, for instance, um, on the Senate side, and then on the House side, Leanne Panetta from California. How do we talk to them about this? And, and once we started talking, people were very interested. Um, and then we're like, okay, how do we get, I remember the conversations with the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. Are they gonna be interested in this? Is this something that a Blue Cross Blue Shield plan would um, pay for? And so there's a whole discussion around that. Meanwhile, um, back at the ranch, back at uh, amongst all the hospices who were like just little fledgling organizations all over the country were like, oh, no, 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 this is gonna change hospice. We like this volunteer thing. We don't want rules and regulations. Um, we don't want, you know, Medicare dollars is not the way to go. Um, we had uh, at one meeting, um, while we we're in the midst of this whole discussion around the Medicare hospice benefit, um, we had a meeting at the Omni Shoreham in Washington, where literally there was screaming matches and throwing of chairs um, from the people who wanted Medicare to pay for um, hospice benefits and the people who said, we will never agree to that. This is, a, this is a volunteer movement. We will always be a volunteer movement and we don't want Medicare to spoil it. So um, very, very interesting tension. Um, and I, I remember myself um, going to meet with a group of hospice directors in Virginia. Um, and we were meeting in someone's home. Someone had put the soup on in their crock pot. I mean, that's the kind of place we were, you know, is you stayed with people, you didn't have hotel rooms, you didn't have the money for that. So you did whatever you could do to make sure that you got the word out. And um, to a person, all the people who were hospice directors at that meeting were like, if we had rotten eggs and tomatoes, we would throw them at you because we don't believe that Medicare has any business um, paying for care at the end of life. Um, so it's, it's, it was a rough time. Um, and, you know, so if we put in context, then we're talking 1981, 1982, um, and then we have um, just an incredible, um, um, political um, kind of set of decisions that got made that were so successful. Um, and so we had Bob Dole, um, very, uh, very prominent in the, on the Senate. Um, and then we had John Kerry for one of the, um, one of the nights when we were trying to gather enough votes, walked around the floor of the Senate with his clipboard looking for um, people to sign on. And he got enough votes to get it, um, to get it passed in the Senate. On the House side, Leon Panetta, 
and Bill Gratison from Ohio are the two big, big champions in the early, early days. And you know, we talked to Leon Panetta a couple of months ago. He remembers fondly um, the times he spent trying to um, see if we could get the rest of the House, um, the House of Representatives, to um, sign on to hospice as well. So, you know, Judy, what strikes me is, I mean, you've said a couple things. Um, one, we're at this interesting point where, um, you know, you were saying that people were tired and trying to figure out a strategy. And so, you know, in, in, in the palliative care world, and I think the hospice world too, you know, we wanted to be opening up and now we're overwhelmed and people right. are tired, right? So right. like, okay, cyclical. And then the other thing that you mentioned that was really interesting was, um, this part about kind of a coming together when you when you sort of have this this split. So I'm curious that clearly um, you know you remember that room in the Omni <laughs> Hotel. Um, it's indelible because probably um, there's a lot of pieces to that. I, I have to keep reminding people that you know hospice and palliative care folks reflect the population. I think right. there's sometimes this sense that we're all kumbaya. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. But I think, you know, the part that to me is a big lesson for some of our students is, okay, so you had this, I don't want to say fracture, but this very divergent mm -hmm. thought, but you came together and you had the benefit. How did you kind of then go about healing and bringing people back together? Well, so that, that I, I actually have been thinking about this recently. It is um, so fascinating that the benefit was based on a study done by um, the administration by the, um, uh, it's a demonstration project with 26 hospices. And they were looking at um, cost-based reimbursement. So the way a thing in the past now, but um, so they were looking at cost-based reimbursement and they were looking at how can we provide care for the same patient population um, more, more efficiently and for less cost. So the theory was hospice care would be 40% of what the last six months of a cancer patient's life would cost. Um, a lot of that work was, um, you know, kind of wrapped into the first design of the Medicare hospice benefit. But in 1982, the benefit was only designed for three years. So a lot of the people who were in the, um, we don't want hospice, we don't want Medicare, we want hospice the way we've always had hospice, we want to make sure that we are thinking about this as a volunteer movement. Um, they were like, well, you know, this is going to be over in three years, we won't have to worry about this anymore. So in the first two or three years, there were very few people who applied to become Medicare certified as hospices. Um, and many, in fact, a lot of providers that I've worked with in the Carolinas, um, many of them said, well, you know, we're not, we can't believe it's going to really go on. That would be too big, uh, too big a change for Medicare. Um, and so they said, we'll just wait and see what happens. Um, so really in 1986, that is the key. Um, because in 1986, um, the benefit was made permanent. Um, okay. Also, a lot of political back and forth, a lot of work behind the scenes, um, tucked into or language tucked into a bill. Um, and once that happened, then it was like, okay, you can either um, 
you know, start thinking that Medicare will actually pay you for services, or you can continue to be a volunteer hospice. And we had um, really up until very recently, we had hospices who were only volunteer, um, and we still have a few um, around the country now. You know, I mean, that's just interesting to think about because when you think about how stretched healthcare is, and then you think about, you know, I'm just thinking about my being a provider, like to have that energy right. to be able to do that. And also, I, I mean, in, in realistic terms, um, financially for providers, if you're in rural areas, there might be somebody who cannot afford to be a volunteer, right? I mean, right, right. so when you look at a health equity piece, it's an interesting dynamic. Okay. Um, well, you, you also have a, I think in rural areas you have, I mean, the numbers are not with you. So right. you might have a hospice where your average daily census is 10 or right. 15. Okay. Um, and so a lot of the early, um, a lot of the early work was what, what is the magic minimum number of patients you need to have in order to be like solvent? Um, you know, and I think, you know, in the early days, I think our number was like 20. So I was like, going to say that, Judy, really I remember nine. those days where as long as right. your average daily census was 20, you were okay. And right. right. And you could survive. And then right. in that survive, I mean, survive. survive. I don't mean, you know, do beyond that. And what is, right. what is the average daily census now that you need to survive? You know, I don't think I have heard in a long time what the average what the survival um, number is, but I think you know our average daily census among all hospices is like in the 80s now. So okay, all um, right. so it's like you know, four still times still time. small, but um, yeah. some some small providers certainly. So when you think about so that was pivotal, and so you know co coalescing, and then from you know 86 to 90s, I, I definitely remember this whole movement or people getting certified and then the different states deciding whether they are going to do CMS survey or they're gonna create their own. I mean, right. you know, always this interesting part because it, rather than making it simple, we try to have many different ways, but you know, right. that's how we are as humans. Um, and then, um, you know, when you think about that, like what was another pivotal moment? Because I know that so in the nineties or, you know, early nineties is when we're starting to see, this movement of people moving out of hospice to develop palliative care. There starts to be this conversation about the two roads, but right. was there something else that you would think that was sort of important that played into that? Or was that just sort of a natural evolution? Well, I, I, I think before we even get to palliative care, I, I really wanna talk just for a minute about the state level, um, the state level work. Um, most, most states now have some sort of hospice licensure, but in the early days, mm. we were really um, very concerned about protecting the name hospice. So is it a license? I mean, do we need to have a licensure? Do we need to be licensed as a, um, as a healthcare entity in order to provide care in the home? Um, how, do we, how do we think about that? And you know, I, I think that's where a lot of that 90s work was, is um, what's the definition of a hospice? Who can provide hospice? How can we protect the name? And what are the licensure requirements? Never mind Medicare for a minute. Um, what are the licensure requirements? And so if you're a volunteer hospice or if you're a Medicare certified hospice, you still have to meet these sort of bottom, you know, first rung um, absolute requirements in order to use the name hospice in your state. 
Um, we had, I think, um, a lot of conversation among various states um, to say, can we all use kind of a standard definition? And a lot of states did. Um, now, um, I think, and I'll just do a slight side road into palliative care for a minute, but if you had a very limiting um, definition of who can be a hospice patient, let's say, um, which many states have had, and you said a patient who is terminally ill with, an, with a life expectancy of six months or less, typical Medicare definition of hospice patient, um, then the chances of your being able to broaden your services to palliative care were very tricky. Right. Um, and so you had, um, you had no, how you had many, many states said, you can't provide palliative care under your hospice license. So there's a lot of work that went into, um, and probably a lot of that work didn't happen until the early 2000s, if you really know. Um, but I think that's another piece of the work is to say, where, where do hospice and palliative care fit together? Um, and I think um, a lot of our conversation has been um, care for seriously ill individuals is palliative care. Hospice is a subset of palliative care for patients nearing the end of life. And I, I use the word nearing the end of life very purposely, um, because if you say at the end of life, um, then the perception is that you are only taking care of that um, last week of life or last few days of life. And we, we don't like that perception. So um, but just another sort of wrinkle to some of the early uh, work on this. But I think you make this, I mean, that's a really important point, and I'm really glad you brought it up, because I think, again, what you're speaking to, and, and when we're trying to have our students think as leaders, is there's this national part, right? Because when you were talking, I was thinking, well, of course it would be easy, because it's the Medicare definition. Mm -hmm. But right, we have 50 states and territories, right. and they're going to interpret that, and they do that with licensure of everything else, right? right. So, right. of course, with hospice, um, and and then, you, you know, you bring up a really important thing, because I know, um, you know, when we think about hospice of Connecticut, how they had to get how Connecticut would recognize them because in some states it's as a skilled nursing facility, right. other states it's like um, specialty hospital bill or someplace okay. a group home. And that yep. does vary state to state. Yep. Um, and, and that can be really tricky. I know in my own state of Massachusetts, we have one inpatient hospice, but it was so hard for them to get that. And I want, I don't know the facts and I should probably ask that um, if the state sort of kind of said this might be a one-time deal because everybody else who's opened has been a hospice right. house. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I'm like, hmm, that's an interesting trend. Um, mm -hmm. Was, you know, was it because of the licensing and it's too expensive or you have to be too big or whatever? But I also think then, you know, that is an important part of, okay, so if we have limited it that and healthcare is changing and, and we're moving beyond cancer care and so right. the hospice definition doesn't fit, then it's not only a philosophical reason that palliative care comes in, it's actually a policy issue of how is, you think, because, because I mean, you know better, I know I've lived through some of this about, you know, who we would admit to hospice and we would, mm -hmm. 
you know, we were kind of a little bit allowed to be more generous, certainly right. in the beginning. Then when we had HIV AIDS patients, that sure. like blew everybody away because Correct. it's the exact type of population you never want. And HMO, you take a risk and you think you're going to do it on a young population and you pick this young population and they are sicker than your older population. Right. So that happened. And then you know, I think when OIG got involved and then everybody like went from, oh, we're going to do this to we're really interpreting tightly because right. we're terrified. Right. Yeah. Um, so just interesting. It is interesting. And, you know, I think um, that sort of y'all come kind of approach to it, if you will, um, is a lot of early hospice work and a lot of work even into the 90s was, and I, I've, I've Part of my master's work was on what characteristics are there about the volume of patients? Is it a tertiary? So I was a regression analysis on is it a, a tertiary care hospital that's close by? Is it the number of oncologists? And what's the patient mix look like? So here, here is where we went. So in the 90s, this was a 90% cancer, 10% all other diagnoses. Today, we are 25 to 30% cancer and 70% all other diagnoses with the highest utilization on the Medicare side for neurologicals. So Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's is our number one um, diagnosis today. Um, and then we have the, guess what, what everyone now calls the the organ um, diseases. So we have the, the heart and the COPD diseases also um, being very high. So, I mean, imagine that as a part of our um, kind of our, our story as we're thinking about, we have a group of staff who know how to care for cancer patients. Uh, now all of a sudden we have AIDS patients, we have COPD patients, we have patients with a much more um, jaggedy, if you will, um, kind of um, process for dying than the cancer patient with a very typical trajectory. So um, another, another part to the challenge, I think. Well, and I think also in the sense that, um, for what you were saying before, and the Medicare benefit was based on this cancer population. Correct. Right? Absolutely and, correct. Um, and, and adjustments made. And I think, and i um, and I'm, I'm, you can speak more to it, um, while people wanted to make those adjustments, depending on what administration was there, right. being terrified of opening it up because I think um, for our students to understand that in the late 2000s, when we were trying to talk about advanced directives and it got um, very effectively um, kind of tagged as death panels. I mean, Absolutely. it took us years to recover. Years. So I think right. everybody was like going, wow, that's how they did that. I mean, who, right. who God only knows what they do. I, and I remember actually myself at one point practicing um, in Boston and, and starting an urban hospice. And, you know, we would have really complex patients. And there was one day where I kind of said to myself, you know, the right to life people could interpret this in a different way. We have to be really careful about our message. Um, so, you know, I wonder if you can kind of talk about some of that um, messaging and, and outward focus that we could like have what we would talk together, but then how we were sort of trying to deal with this public imaging. Right, sure. So um, let's, let's go just for a minute to the Terry Shivo case, um, yeah. Florida case. Um, 
young woman um, in a persistent vegetative state um, did not have a advanced directive. So, you know, perfect sort of uh, story for some of this. And her husband and her parents disagreed about what should happen to her. Um, and she ended up being cared for in a um, residential hospice, so um, in Tampa. Now, as Terry Schiavo, as the case got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, um, Right to Life was very involved. Um, our, our, um, I was at NHPCO at the time, and um, our 800 number was plast on, plastered on a banner that was featured on national television. Um, we ended up um, having to have all our mail sent to a mail facility to check for um, bombs and powders wow. and all that kind of thing. Wow. We had an armed guard at the front door of our office. Wow. So it was very, very, very serious and very scary, even though we are, you know, hundreds of miles away from Florida because it was such a national event. And I think you know, the, the challenge, I think, and the challenge is always going to be um, with, with care at the end of life is, are you limiting care? Are you rationing care? Um, are you sending these patients to hospice so that they, you know, get something, but you're not giving them the full range of care that, you know, some, some part of the patient population would get if they didn't have hospice or if they were in a certain economic group or something like that. I think it is, um, it is probably the trickiest place we are always. Um, and even though we have not had mentions of death panels in years now, um, it is still like right on the edge of, you know, is, is there was a, a case that we got notified about um, at NHPCO recently where it's like, okay, is this the next Terry Shavo case? Is this the, the next case where, you know, we're gonna be accused of not providing all the care that a, a person should have. And um, it's, it's, a, um, it's a dynamic, I think, that is very uh, connected to our um, American culture where we say um, that death doesn't happen to us. Um, it happens to someone else. And I, I will always remember a, a, uh, the director of St. Christopher's when he came um, to, the, uh, to the United States, he would say in his, I won't be able to do the, the English um, accent justice, but he said, oh, you Americans, you think somehow that dying is optional. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of where we are. And it's a lot of where we are even today. So um, very, well, very interesting point. But I think also, I mean, you know, if if we were questioning sort of our roles, I mean, COVID, you know, exploded anything that we were doing. And I think, you know, hospice and palliative care has stepped up to the plate quite well. Absolutely. I think, you know, hospice has done a great job for the patients that, you know, it was like, okay, they don't, they're not, they don't want aggressive care. They don't want to be in the hospital. This is what they right. should get. Although the right. one thing that I did not like was that, the, instead of kind of focusing on the philosophy, some of the care it was like, if you want to see your family, then go for hospice. Yes, that's part of it, but you know, that just right. didn't quite feel right. I but know. I think, I like you that. know, with the palliative care part, like, okay, so we needed to step in and help people with the conversations and learn that. Absolutely. I think the peril for palliative care is that great things done, but it may have pushed back again against thinking, mm -hmm. okay, well, palliative care is only for these really sick people who are dying, right? right? So right. having to help as 
the pandemic you know, eases up and we're not through it, but eases up to sort of say, yeah, we need to keep going back because they're still seriously ill people, not sure. just COVID patients. Right. So I wonder in a certain sense, you know, what are some of the things that you think are important for hospice and palliative care to think forward about learning from our past in, in terms of how we move forward? Well, so I, th I think, um, you know, actually one of the things that COVID has taught us is um, that very large group of seriously ill individuals, not terminally ill, seriously ill individuals who have, who do not have the care they need. Um, and it's, it's stunning, I think, for us to think about that group of patients um, and how fragmented their care is or how little care they get. Um, so for the last, um, year or year and a half or so, um, NHPCO has been working with the National Coalition for Hospice and Palliative Care um, on a community-based palliative care benefit mm -hmm. um, and proposing it as a demonstration project through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation or CMMI. Um, it, it is continuing to get a lot of very favorable response. Um, and I, I think what we, we should all be thinking about is what kind of support, what kind of wraparound support do we need for patients so that they are connected? I mean, you know, so think, think loneliness in terms of the COVID pandemic, especially um, if we're thinking about um, supportive services for uh, socialization, supportive services for um, check-ins um, in between doctor um, telehealth visits, that sort of thing. Um, but I think there is a lot of interest now in developing a palliative care benefit. Um, and um, that would you know, be a very nice complement to hospice, but also thinking about how can hospice change? Um, what are the things that we need to really be thinking about now um, that are you know, 40 years old, a 40 year old hospice benefit is not the same group of patients that we saw 40 years ago. So another piece of the puzzle. So Judy, explain a little bit as I'm just trying to think through that. Um, so we have the hospice benefit and we're thinking about a community-based Palliative, palliative, care. Care. palliative care benefit. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I could see that that would complement because I mean, it speaks to I know, I think one of the things that I think about that, you know, I kind of had to learn in my nursing history was, um, you know, this movement from the community to the hospital to make it easier, but that's not where people want to be. And in fact, with health equity and all that, it's, it's really right. hard. So right, if, right. if doing that, of keeping people in their community, um, I think it's been interesting though, because when I think about my own work, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of made a um, personal commitment to, to say, you know, I've done national stuff. I need to come back and do some work in my state. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been working on our, our palliative care council for our state and, and our network. And we did a survey um, and I would love to see what it was now because it's now about four years old, but we're trying to get a sense of what people even understood about community-based hospice and palliative care. The hospice right. part they got, the palliative care part um, still, particularly even by hospices, was hard for them to understand, um, didn't mm -hmm. understand that you still need to have 24-hour access if you're going to keep people out of the hospital, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, the care was going to be a little bit different because, you know, people were still having their diabetes treated or their heart failure. Um, so it's been interesting because I think in my mind, what it showed me is that 
we make a lot of assumptions for the public about what they understand, but I still think that there's been a lot of, um, uh, I guess, non-consensus opinion about, you know, what that is and what it takes and understanding, and you have done so much of this work that it's not going to be about one entity. It's got to be a collaborative effort, right? Oh, and, and, and it could be, um, different entities providing the group of services. So it could be in one community, it's the hospice in collaboration with the home health agency and the assisted living down the street and all, I mean, in another community, it could be somebody else leading the charge. It's, I think um, it's both the challenge and the beauty of a community-based palliative care program is it's bigger than hospice for sure. It's it may be some version of the same set of kind of philosophically set of services, but definitely not the intensity. Um, you know, you're looking at um, the patient's primary care physician or um, primary care provider being absolutely the driver of a lot of the care and the supportive services being a wraparound to whatever care that patient is getting. So. You know, I think in a lot of ways it is, it's, it's the exciting new frontier um, and hard to know what we'll see when, when we get to the end of it. But I, I think in, in some of the ways that the hospice benefit was tested um, in the demonstration pro- project back in the 70s, um, this will be the same. It's like we'll have a group of hospices and a group of other types of providers who test this out and say, how does this work? Um, what are the things that patients really wanted? And we know from our experience with the Medicare Care Choices model that what patients wanted the most um, was aid services, somebody to help them with personal care. I mean, this is not rocket science here. Um, and occasional check-in from you know somebody who gives them a phone call or just checks in once a, once a week or whatever. Um, but support in the home, that's what everybody is wanting. And as all of us get older, we also think about that for ourselves and for our families. Um, It's like, okay, how can I make sure that we keep mom at home as long as we possibly can? And that's, I think for all of us, that's at the end of the day, that's our goal. Well, and it's an interesting part though too, right? Because what we have structured um, in in our current healthcare system is to sort of we call that custodial care as if to devalue it, right? And yet that is the very... Um, foundation of which we could be doing a more appropriate services or preventing things because right, of that. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it is, you're right. It's, it's that combo. It's that providing services and preventing. Um, so if we're thinking about preventing, our goal is keeping that patient out of the hospital, keeping that patient out of the ER. Um, so how do we do that? We provide whatever care is needed so that they can continue to manage at home. Are there other things that you think about for our students? Because um, we think of them as being leaders and they're going to kind of step into a new area. Are there other things that you think that they should be thinking forward about what they need to step into? You know, for me, I, I think my biggest single worry on the palliative care front um, is over medicalizing it. Um, so really thinking as broadly as we can about what things, I mean, if, if we keep the patient and their family at the core, at, at our center, um, 
And I, I think for me, that's always my driver. And I, I you know, we can, I, I pick, I, I have several, I have a mother and several friends who've had hospice. And so I go there in my own mind to say, okay, what would mom want? What would Bill, what would be good for Bill? Um, who, for whom I was, I, I was his neighbor and um, hospice caregiver for a year. Um, so I, I, I think that's the biggest, I think our challenge is what is it? What services are offered? Are they the same no matter where you are in the country? Um, or is there some version of the same no matter where you are in the country? And then how can we keep the patient and their family at the core, um, at, the, at the center of how we provide care? So those are, those are my reflections. And certainly um, much broader than nurses, social workers, nurses and physicians and even social workers. So yeah. chaplains, music therapy, art therapy, all the massage therapy, all the other things that a patient could, could possibly need. Which, I mean, I think for me broadens it from medical care to health. Absolutely. And, yes. You know, of really thinking about that. Um, do you have any other advice for our students in terms of leadership or anything else? Um, I, I think find, find your own true north. Um, find the place where um, you, you go in your head to say, what would this person I loved, um, what would they want? Um, what, what is my belief system so that I can always go there and say, this will help me guide decisions I make for how this will work tomorrow, next year, whatever. I, I, I think that's the bottom line. And for me, it's always, um, how do we make sure that we're being true to the patients who need us? Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, the same thing with drugs. And the way yeah, right. of medication, I'm like, will this help the patient or not? If it's right. not help, right. get rid of it. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, that has been wonderful. Lynn, do you have any other final questions or comments to make? Oh, Judy's the queen as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think, Judy, you know, what I can just say for our students is, is this is why it's really important to understand the history because so much of it has guided and whether you agreed with it or not or however you interpret it, we're right. still kind of working within that confine. And so how do we sort of change um, sometimes the framework, um, but also helping people sometimes look at different perspectives because we all are not going to agree all the time right. no, um, and and what is grounding us and I think you know you remind us you know of the patient and the family and I, and I would even add to that the community because the patient and family right. are part of, of a community um, sure. and so you know those are just really important because I think then when you wrap it around to that um, it's not just about the clinical care. It's about, you know, understanding the community. It might be community development. It might be technology to help with that. It might be policies as, you know, you're saying that this demonstration project financing to kind of think, okay, do we need to rethink about this? Um, and maybe another social context to help people remember that the one thing we have all in common is that we all are going to die. Right. Um, and, you know, whether we, we try to pretend not, it is kind of one of those sobering um, moments that, you know, are bringing us together. So, right. well, absolutely. Judy, thank you so much for sharing this time with us and your insights. It's, you know, it's wonderful to walk through that timing with you because I'm sure in some ways it feels like no time has passed. And then you right. look and think, wow, here's right. where we've gone to. Right, exactly. Great. Thank you so much. 
Well, it was my pleasure to be with you. And always, it's, it's my pleasure to kind of um, talk about the past because I think it does inform our present and future. So Absolutely. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.